Good morning. The Bible is really clear about what it takes for a person to become a Christian. From the human perspective, our response to God's initiative is to repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Repent means to acknowledge that we are wrong and going the wrong direction and have sinned against God, a holy God, and we need him. And faith is just depending on him. The Bible's really clear about that. The Bible is also really clear about various things that draw us close to Jesus Christ after we become a Christian. There are many, but it's it's really clear that we should meditate on Scripture, for instance, and we should pray and and we should fellowship with other Christians, and there are others, but those things are really clearly stated in Scripture. But then, beyond those things that are really clearly stated... There are a lot of rules and regulations that humans have created about those two very things, about what it requires to become a Christian or, once you're a Christian, what it requires to be, a, to be close to Christ. We call those extra-biblical because they are not things the Bible teaches. They're things that human beings have created. Some of you, many of you, maybe most or all of you have been exposed to some rules and regulations that weren't from the Bible that told you what you needed to do to become a Christian or what you needed to do to be close to God. Agreed? Take a minute, turn to someone that is around you and discuss what some of those are. Name what some of those rules that are not biblical, but you've heard and that you've been pressured with perhaps. So take a minute to share those. Okay, let's, um, let's bring it back together. We, we won't take time to, to, to gather those, I'm sure. Uh, there are many. You might have, on the first one, on extra-biblical rules for salvation, you might have been told or taught, for instance, that if you die, if you leave this earth without having confessed uh, those last sins, that you would at worst go to hell or at best maybe go to purgatory. Or maybe if you attended a church that was not the same type of church that would be considered to be the one true church that if you went to some other church other than for a wedding, for instance, that you would be excommunicated from the church and from heaven. Or maybe you have been taught that you have to be baptized with water in order to be saved. As the second part, rules for being close to God, um, it, it may depend on where you grew up. What country you were raised in. They're different in different countries. And if you were born and lived in America your whole life, it may be what part of the country you lived in. It might be that you were told there's only one version of the Bible, the King James Version of the Bible, and you have to use that one and that one only. Or maybe that you have to totally abstain from alcohol in order to be close to Christ. Now, there, the Bible's really clear that drunkenness is a sin and people should be wise and careful. But 
but it doesn't teach that a responsible adult having a glass of wine uh, with a meal is the same thing as as getting drunk. But maybe you were taught that, or maybe for women you were told there were certain ways you had to dress, right? You had to wear a hat or a head covering on on your head while you were at worship, or you couldn't wear jewelry or makeup or high heels. And we could go on and on and on with these. Now, the reason why I bring these up, and there are so many, the people that lived in the first century in a city called Colossae were also faced with some extra biblical rules. There were things in their culture that were being said to them that went far beyond what the scripture said. And that was one of the reasons that the apostle Paul wrote the letter, which is preserved for us in our Bible that we call Colossians. So I want to invite your attention today to Colossians chapter two, beginning at verse six. In these days at harvest, we're in uh, the 40 days of prayer, and we're taking the letter of Colossians, and we're walking through a section of it each week. And we're doing it for a couple of reasons. We want to learn what is there, what God is teaching us about himself and about life. But we're also desiring to learn how we can take those very same things and use them to pray for others. This will change your prayer life, I promise you. If you pray biblically, it will change how you pray. And that's what we're trying to get at today. Here's the way we want to pray. Pray that believers will continue to live their lives closely connected to Christ rather than trying to fulfill human rules. So will you stand with me as we read God's word? I'm not going to read the whole passage yet. We'll walk through the whole thing. But I want to read just a few of these verses, beginning at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, Strengthen in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, let me set the stage for where we are in Colossians. In the immediately preceding verses to this, Paul has expressed his desire for the Colossians, to have a complete understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And so after telling them that he wants them to understand who Christ is, now he begins elaborating in this passage that we're going to look at today on what 
fullness involves, what spiritual fullness involves. You see the very first two words there, so then. In other words, in light of what I've just said to you, you might translate it therefore or something like that. It's in light of what we have just heard, I want to elaborate on that for you. And as we walk through this passage today, there are four ways that we can pray for each other. And the first one is this. As you think about praying for other Christians, pray that they will walk with Christ through regular, ongoing connection with him. Verse 6 again. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. In the original language, as we focus on continue to live your lives in him, it would read like this. In him live. The word live is a word that's often translated walk. Some of your versions may say that. Walk in him. Keep walking in him. And the idea of walk is how you conduct yourself, how you live your life. But the huge emphasis by the way this is written is on the in him part. In him live. Live in submission to him. Live by being connected to him. Live by drawing strength from him. In him live. Now to help us understand what in him really means, let's think about a contemporary example as well as the biblical explanation. I think about a woman who is pregnant, who has a baby in her. (laughs) Right? And that baby is completely dependent on the mother. All of its life, all of its nutrition, all of its health is drawn based on the intimate and completely dependent relationship that the baby has to the mother, right? We say the baby is in her. And in a similar way, believers in Jesus Christ, not all, we talk about Christ living in us, and he does, But we are also in him. We are intimately related to him. We are united with him. That's the contemporary illustration. Now, the passage continues. There are four participles that follow that explain when we come to verse 7 what that really looks like. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And overflowing with thankfulness. So four Four explanations of it. Uh, rooted, the tense here in the original is indicating that it's like a, it's a stated action. It's something that's happened in the past that has ongoing results. We were permanently rooted. Think of trees that are deeply rooted in the ground, uh, that have, uh, that draw that nourishment from the soil. Built up in him. Now the metaphor Switches from botany to agriculture, or from agriculture to architecture. And the idea is being built, a house that is established, that rests on a firm foundation. This one is in the present tense, so it's a continual process. Then strengthened in the faith is also a present tense. Now, all three of these first descriptions are in, in like a passive voice, so the idea is that God is the one. That roots us, that builds us up, that strengthens us. When we come to the last one, it turns a little bit and it focuses on 
kind of our response, and that is overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. If we don't have a sense of thankfulness in our life and an experience of thankfulness in our life, we will be subject to all kind of false ideas out there. Now, think about overflowing. Think about the banks of a river and in a torrential rain where the water just overflows. Maybe like about a week and a half ago, remember when it rained really hard here? Some of you had rivers in your yard that weren't rivers before. And you saw what overflowing looks like. That's what is talked about here. So the first way that this passage guides us to pray for each other is just to pray that other Christians will really walk with Christ. They'll be regularly and on in an ongoing fashion connected with Christ. Number two, pray that they will overcome destructive ideas by grasping the fullness of God in Christ. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. There were all kind of destructive ideas in the first century. And so if we put this picture up, the Colossian heresy was, was a, it was a mixture of elements from society and some, some Jewish elements, some Roman elements, some philosophical elements. But basically, and there was this this view in the first century and, and, and into the second century and beyond called Gnosticism that it was a little bit early for that in Colossians, but we think the early, uh, the early forms of it could have been there. And, and Gnosticism was about knowledge and it was about material things being evil. So the body was evil and was wrong. And the way the Gnostics wanted to have everybody live right was by being like just cutting off all physical kind of things. So, for instance, when it applied to Jesus, and the Bible clearly was teaching that Jesus was God, he was God the Father in the flesh, the, they, they couldn't accept that because how could God be actually living in a human body since the body is evil? And so there were all of these emanations all of these beings between humans and God, and they just taught that Jesus was just up there. <laughs> he was near the top, maybe, but he wasn't God, right? And that, that's a destructive idea. And they lived that, and that is why Paul said to them, make sure that nobody takes you captive through these things that depend on human tradition. And they're not based on Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do we have any destructive ideas in our society today? We are awash in a sea of postmodernism. And there are so many ideas that are so false and so harmful and so destructive 
to faith in Jesus Christ. Like, for instance, and there are so many that we can't name them all, but the fundamental basis of it is that there's just no absolute truth. Two people can uh, define truth in different ways, and they can both be correct. It's a destructive idea. Another one is, what is right is what works for you, <laughs> right? If you can tell something that's, that's morally and ethically right if, if you resonate with it, if it helps you, if, if it's, you heard this one, your truth. <laughs> I'm just living my truth. I identify as a cat. You can't tell me otherwise. Now, of course, I wouldn't identify as a cat because I hate cats. I'd identify as like a German shepherd or something, maybe. Not really. Or how about this one? Jesus is just one religious leader among many. Muslims, Buddhists, Christians, Jews, all these people are praying to the same God. They're just using a different name. These are destructive ideas. I hope it never happens, but if there is a fire in this building, if, if this building were to catch on fire and we were in here, I hope that all of you don't say, well, my truth is you should do this and you should do this and you should do this. How do we get out? I hope somebody says, that's the door right there. That's the way out right there. And Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So the way we pray for other believers is in all of this mess that we're exposed to all the time. Don't, don't be tricked by it. Don't be deceived by it. Don't be drawn away by it. Why? Because in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That is an amazing truth. It's all of God's being lives or has a settled home in Jesus. So pray that we can overcome destructive ideas by grasping the fullness of God in Christ. Number three, pray that they will grasp their completeness in Christ. You see that? See the synergy here? We want to grasp that. Christ is complete, but we also want to grasp that in Christ, Christians are also complete. Verse 10, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Through our union with Christ, believers have been brought to fullness. Not his perfection or his deity, but we share all the resources, all of his resources that we need to live this thing we call life. Now, the, the believers at Colossae were apparently being led to believe that they didn't have complete sufficiency in Christ, that they needed other things in addition to Christ other man-made traditions and philosophies. But Paul says, no, Christ is adequate to meet all human needs. Now, 
it's a, it's a reasonable question to ask. What thoughts tempt you to think that you're not complete in Christ? Is it the expectations of others? Is it a personal struggle with self-worth? Is it comparing yourselves with others or maybe a notion of a, of, of a so-called, quote, perfect Christian life? In union with Christ, all our needs are met. As Charles Wesley put it, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, and more than all in Thee I find. Now, after stating that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God, and, in, in, and that in Him believers have fullness, Paul goes on in the passage to describe how that happened. Right? He, he says that it's a truth. Well, how did it happen? Well, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. In the Old Testament, males were circumcised. It was not just a physical act. It was a spiritual thing for them. It carried religious overtones. It helped identify them as people of God because no other people other than the Jewish people did that. So here in Colossae, now that they weren't in the Old Testament anymore, they come into the New Testament era, apparently there were people still stressing that you need to be circumcised in order to be identified by God, to be accepted by God. You need to go through that same ritual for that purpose. And Paul is saying, wait a minute. That's not true. You've, you've experienced a spiritual circumcision. Something else has happened to you. Faith, not any requirement of the law, is all you need to be identified as a person of God. That is the reality. And the symbol of it is in verse 12. The symbol is baptism. So the reality is faith. The symbol is having been buried with baptism... With him, or buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Baptism is an outward act of obedience that symbolizes the inward act of faith and salvation. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of the league of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You see this written code that he's talking about here. This legal indebtedness here. It, it kind of referred to an IOU that a person would sign when they incurred a debt and it was their acknowledgement that they had to pay it. Now, commentators have struggled a lot with what is this? The Mosaic law itself was written, right? It had obligations and it was, it was given for a good purpose. And although it was given for a good purpose, in one sense, it worked against people because it showed them how sinful they were and how they, nobody could ever measure up. Nobody could perfectly obey it. But I think the reference here goes deeper than just to the Mosaic law itself. I think it applies to the debts and obligations that we have to God. 
all of us have disobeyed God's law. And when we do it, it's like we need to write an IOU because we're indebted to him. It's a bond that's held out against us. That's what was canceled when Jesus died on the cross. He canceled that debt. It was like a huge IOU. We we have this huge indebtedness and our bank account is empty. And people think, all right, well, what can I do to add to that bank account? And that's where some of these extra biblical things came about. Oh, we'll be circumcised or do this. Or today it might be be baptized or join a church or, you know, don't do these kind of things or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you, if you put all of that together, then maybe that'll make enough deposits in your account. Maybe that'll be enough to satisfy God's bill. But I want to tell you something. Jesus Christ knew what the bill was. And when he walked up that hill or was carried up that hill, essentially, to that cross, that's when it was all nailed to the cross and it was canceled. This is when he said, I am going to take care of this debt. It's wonderful to have a debt canceled, isn't it? (laughs) The sin debt was canceled at the cross. There was an ancient custom that said when decrees were nullified, they would nail a copy of that text up in a public place. And so it seems like this may be alluding to that. Or maybe even remember also whenever there was an executed person, they would, they would post something up on, on their cross. And remember what they put on Jesus, the king of the Jews. They were accusing him. And ironically, Jesus took all the accusations against us and he nailed them to the cross. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In ancient times, when the Roman emperors would go out and and fight a battle, they they would come back with a victory procession. Over the enemies, they would lead a parade. And this is, this is the image. Jesus Christ won over all the spiritual powers and he, and he leads this victorious procession over all of them. In other words, it looked like to the observer that Jesus was being humiliated. And he was, but he wasn't being defeated. <laughs> On the cross, he was winning the victory over all the spiritual forces. So this is why we pray. This is how it happened. This is how we became complete in Christ. And so a great way to pray for each other as you're praying for people, Lord, help them remember who they are. Help them remember what you've done for them. Help them remember the victory that you have given them, that they are complete in Christ, that they don't need to try to prove it to anybody else, and they don't need to feel overwhelming guilt because of what you've done. Number four, the fourth reason or the fourth way, actually, that we can pray for other Christians is this. Pray that they will refuse to be judged on the basis of religious rules and rituals. Verse 16, therefore, in light of all this victory I've just told you about, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. 
There was an asceticism in that day that just wouldn't even like eat meat, wouldn't eat any animal meat. But Jesus had declared in Mark chapter 7 that all foods are clean, right? Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon. Now, the Jews had a sacred calendar. There were certain Sabbaths. There were certain holy days. So some of these festivals were probably Jewish in nature, certainly. And Paul teaches, not only here but in other places, that if you as an individual want to refrain from certain foods or drinks or celebrate, remember certain festivals or certain things, it's fine. But you you can't force that on other people. You can't say, now that we're in the New Testament era, you have to do it too. Everybody has to do it. Everybody has to not eat all the things I don't eat. Or they have to celebrate certain festivals in exactly the way. Look, if it's in the Bible, if it's clearly taught through the lens of the New Testament that we are commanded to do it, we're going to stand with it. But if it's beyond that, if it's extra biblical, there are some really strong reasons not to do it. In fact, as this passage continues, we get some reasons uh, that now that we're living in this new covenant era, we shouldn't make them a test for piety. So, for instance, verse 17, the first one is, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So, if you're taking notes, rather than putting a full sentence, I'm just putting these in words. Put down the word shadow. (laughs) These things looked forward to the reality who is Christ. Christ is the only one who's qualified to be the judge. So, for instance, if today, during Lent, during the 40 days up to Easter, if if you want to avoid eating meat on Fridays or you want to do certain things that and that helps you, that's fine. But since it's not a biblical command, don't be misled to think you have to do it in order to be a Christian or that somebody else's observance of it, uh, of that or other things that aren't clearly taught biblically, will pressure you that you have to do it in exactly the same way. Verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. The literal meaning of this clause is let no one act as an umpire against you. (laughs) That's a good way to understand this phrase about being disqualified. Now, apparently there were some people who claimed that the fact that they worshipped angels rather than God demonstrated their humility. I don't, it sounds strange to me. But even today, there are people who like to show off spiritually (laughs) by what they do or don't do, right? There are people that like to impress others by what they do or don't do. And again, we're thinking of things that aren't biblical necessarily. They act like they've discovered a realm into higher spirituality. But notice how Paul evaluates that person in verse 19. They've lost connection with the head. 
from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Every part of the body can function well if it's connected to the head. And the head, of course, is Christ. If it's connected, it will grow. If it's disconnected, it it means disaster. And again, even though our issues today, maybe the things you talked about in the opening or other things, would be different than what these Colossians faced here, this is where we need to end up. Close connection to Jesus. That's what matters. That's what is important, the head. That's what determines if a person's a Christian or not. Are they connected to God through faith? That's what determines whether a person is a growing or good Christian. Are they in touch with him? Are they rooted in him? Anyone who judges on the basis of religious rules and rituals is is not closely connected to Christ. So that's why I'd use the word here, disconnected. That's another reason not to just give in to things that are extra biblical. You might end up being disconnected. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Again, I think this is a clear reference to what they were experiencing in the first century of this view that material things are wrong. So don't touch, don't taste, don't eat certain things, don't drink certain things. And and maybe even it was extreme in the first century, even sexuality within marriage. So it all focused on the negative. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. All these taboos, and there's a reason in verse 22, these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. They're temporary. They're temporary. That's, that's the third word there. They're temporary. And there are a lot of people who've tried to attain a level of spirituality by adding things to the Bible. And let's see how that works as the passage wraps up. Verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Read the last part of that verse with me out loud. Let's read it. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. If you focus on the externals, it may lead to a proud sense of self-sufficiency for you, but it will not give you victory over sin because that happens from within. So we would add based on verse 23, that they're just ineffective. They're just ineffective. Let's summarize again. Let's review. How are we praying for people? We're praying that they will walk with Christ 
through regular ongoing connection with him. We're, secondly, we're praying they'll overcome destructive ideas by grasping the fullness of God in Christ. Thirdly, we're praying that they will grasp their completeness in Christ. And then fourth, we'll pray that they will refuse to be judged on the basis of religious rules and rituals. There's a difference between a legalistic application of human rules and a godly approach towards biblical and personal standards. If you're a Christian, you need a set of personal standards. They start with everything stated in the Bible, and you also need on your own to decide what you're going to do and not do that might not be explicitly stated in the Scripture. I have those myself. There are things that aren't I can't point to a Bible verse that says you must do this or not do this, but I just like either will do it or not do it because I know it helps me be close to Christ. But notice the difference between the two and also recognize what is difference between what or the difference between what is biblical and what is practical and advisable. So I'll give you one example. It's biblical to meditate on Scripture. It's biblical to be saturated with the Scripture, right? That's a a biblical command, and you need that to be close to Christ. Now, that's biblical. I think it's also practical and advisable to set aside a set time and place in which you spend alone with God and the Bible. Some people call it quiet time or devotions or whatever. But the second, that's practical and advisable. It's not a biblical command. You might do it differently than others. Your time might look differently. It might not be in the morning. It might be at different parts in the day. In 1927, there was a film director... Cecil DeMille, and he cast an actor, H.B. Warner, as Jesus in the silent film King of Kings. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that silent movie. (laughs) Some of you are shaking your head. But the director was concerned about this actor, Warner, because of his personal history. And, it, and he was afraid that he might act in certain ways that if the public found out about it, it would, it would destroy the film. They wouldn't be drawn to go see this man acting as Jesus. So, so they kept him on a really short lease. So they imposed a lot of external measures. They would drive him to the the movie studio, studio every day, and they would they would put him in a car with with the blinds drawn. He was separated from the other cast members. He had he couldn't eat lunch with them. He couldn't play cards, go to ball games, ride in a convertible, or go swimming. But this regimen of all of this external protection of this man didn't make him more holy. Trying to imitate Christ without having a personal experience of the power and forgiveness of Christ seemingly put him even more over the edge 
and he did relapse during the filming into his addiction to alcohol. It's not just about the external things we do. It's about a personal connection to Christ. And that's why we pray that believers will continue to live their lives closely connected to Christ rather than trying to fulfill human needs.